So I just got to welcome everybody. Thank you for listening into our Film Ireland podcast. I have the venerable Carmel Winters here with me, whose new film, Float Like a Butterfly, is out this Friday, which is the 10th of May. May. Yep. And it's going to be countrywide. Uh, I don't know how many screens. Please go and check out your tabloid sheets, broadsheets, whatever, and find out. Carmel, thank you for coming in. Thank you, Paul. Good to it's see you. It's a pleasure uh, to me. have you. Um, Tell us a, a little bit about this film. It's had a nice festival life so far. You picked up a Fipreski in Toronto, yep. which is a audience award, which I think are my favourite kind of awards, isn't it? it? I'd love to say it was an audience award. It actually isn't. Okay, sorry. Um, we got the audience award in Cork, so I'm super proud of that. That's right. And, and that was its first Irish screening, and it was a big... We were there Friday and Saturday in the Everyman, which is kind of about 650-seater. So it wasn't just family, although I'm delighted it was a good old bunch of family as well, but it was a pretty massive, diverse audience of traveller and settled people, which will become obvious why later. Well, actually, and, uh, while we're on that, so let's yeah. give me the synopsis for the film for our listeners. Uh, okay. Um, so there's a young first scene in the film. It's set in the ni- 1964. Muhammad Ali and Sonny Liston are fighting on the radio. And a father and daughter are sparring and enjoying. They're like sparring along with the radio coverage of the fight. And he's um, pres- he's treating his little daughter like she is little Muhammad Ali. Our own little Muhammad Ali is the new heavyweight champion of the world. And like he's actually, to me, in my mind, he's the image of what father-daughter relationships often are and always should be. Where a father is just so proud of his girl and her power and what she can be and just... Bigging her up, up on the shoulders, you know what I mean? And uh, in that scene, I won't give away too much, but basically he's wrenched away from the family in a pretty violent episode. And we fast forward eight years to the main body of the film, which is 1972. Muhammad Ali came to Ireland in 1972. And as, as most people know, I mean, he was just king of Ireland, really. He was the ultimate champion of the underdog, the ultimate icon for the underdog, um, made good. Um, so and you know associated with the Panther movement you know Black Power um, Malcolm X so he's a very potent symbol and uh, eight years later when this girl's father gets out of jail he comes out a shadow of the man he used to be and all his injuries being played out in his role as father he just doesn't he can't he just can't um, I think there's too much pain and grief in him to be able to father such a, a girl who's maybe a reminder of what he used to be. Yes. You know what I mean? And it's also quite unusual amongst her own kind of sisters within the with the, the Traveller Society because she's quite a tough individual. Well, it's interesting in that one because, you know, I have seen in the early days when I don't read reviews much and I haven't read any of the recent ones because I haven't had to but you know early days you kind of have to to engage a bit with you know how people are um, I suppose or how certain cultural gatekeepers are engaging with the film I know how the audience are engaging um, but certain cultural gatekeepers I would have read early reviews and I'm amazed how kind of quick they are to peg the sort of thing she strugg- struggles against as specific to travellers mm-hmm. or like the toxic patriarchy now we all know toxic patriarchy isn't specific to travellers I thought it was just uh, more Irish 
I don't even. I didn't think, think it was toxic you know though. I, I, I can't never even thought do the Irish toxic. bashing. I remember the more well, I, I didn't. Think, I didn't feel it was being bashing. I yeah, just no. thought that she was still a very, very strong-minded. She's back in 1972, and yeah, she exactly. is surrounded by very strong gender roles, and it's like you're going to have loads of babies. That's what you're going to do, exactly. right? And yeah. you're going to big up some men in your life. You're going to use your power to kind of create his almost create almost an illusion of his at the expense of your own. Or, you know, sometimes it works, actually. That arrangement can work. But in this, it's just not, it's not who, who she's, uh, it's not her destiny. It's not her in her DNA to be who she's expected to be. Now, um, and I think for many of us, I mean, look at how many of us are free enough to be what's in our DNA to be. You know what I mean? If you, if you, most human beings I ever meet at some point, they can see a branch in their lives where, wow, I kind of abandoned myself there. I lost, I lost steam there. I lost the way there, whatever it is. And uh, I'm not naive. I think we make all sorts of compromises in life. But in this film, I, um, I really, it was the first time I ever kind of hit on a main character who was a ro- heroic. That, if you've followed any of my work so far, like, I would nearly be the champion of, yeah, she is an underdog, but she's absolutely heroic in the classic sense. And I use a classic story uh, form, you know, Uh, it was the hero's journey largely, you know, type, except that the hero's journey, as it's usually kind of taught and understood, is a remarkably masculine phenomenon. What were the first aspects that came to you before you decided on the world and the time scale? The first, the, the Main aspects came in a cluster together, not separate. It wasn't me going, oh, I'll now make her this and I'll not. Well, she came as a teenager, a young voice. She was young and she was traveller. And uh, she was definitely a champion of something. Uh, her story came fairly intact. Now I tr- tried, I sort of made nearly everyone and anyone the main character through various drafts. Like I introduced the mo- the mother it won't be giving away too much to say that the mother isn't present in the usual sense in this film mm-hmm. but I had the mother present and I made her the main character for a while because I was so uncomfortable with the idea of the point of view being teenage because I suppose I'm always like I'm always digging around in the grey area and the complexity of who we are and the big contradictions that make us up uh, so I was going jeez you know like the teenage experience is certainly complex, but I think it's somewhat more black and white than an adult perspective. So I was going, well, I'll, I'll, um, I'll really pay attention to this. And what I discovered in it is it is a time of great potency. Now, in most cultures in the world, you know, I mean, from quite a, you know, you're physically very potent in your later teenage years. A girl is coming into a very potent time. And a kind of clarity of conviction. I thought, hmm, well, what has that got to uh, teach me, not an audience, but me as a human being? And the more I tuned into it, I was very uncomfortable about being led by it. But I knew it was necessary. And it felt like to me like it was almost the wisdom that's needed as a counteraction to... I think often with years and years on this planet, sometimes people get quite 
jaded and what gets most jaded is their feeling apparatus, mm. not their thinking apparatus. But in recent years, I've just come around to this perspective that intelligence, intelligence without compassion is largely cruel and psychopathic. And I am absolutely like most of what I know in life is provisional and will be reviewed all the time. So you how know, long were you battling with the going on the teenage road? I battled that all the For, time. Yeah. I really battled with this film. And it was really interesting because when people... So the in comfort the very, wasn't really there. It was found towards the very end of the process. No, there was no comfort ever. Oh, wow. This is not a comfortable project. Yeah. It's very, I think it's powerful, but I had to put my hand in the fire to do it. Now, I think that might be partly because... People who know me who saw it in Cork said to me and some people who worked on the film said, ah, well, but you know who Frances is, don't you? And I was like, no, she's a fictional character. That's who she is. And they're like, no, it's you, Carmel. And I was like, I don't think so. But I can see now, belatedly, that maybe what I was fighting with was... um really my own potency to put it very mm. bluntly and you know that business the Muhammad Ali mantra in the film is I am the greatest I said it before I knew I was now that's not vanity talking that's like knowing there's a gap between where you are and where you can be and that you have to imagine yourself already there in order to get there and it's the exact same reason why I set the film in the past I went back to the past to conjure the future as if it had already happened. So, in other words, Katie Taylor was definitely part of the DNA of this film. I'd say if Katie Taylor hadn't... She'd been coming up through the ranks. It was well before the Olympics. She was still in small halls. And Tom and my partner, who's the production designer in the film, she said to me, she said, pay attention to this one. Like, you know, like, uh, you you should make a film about her. And, you know, I still, I still, you know, someone, her star was already rising. You know, she didn't need me to be making a film about her. Do you know what I mean? So I would be, I suppose I'm interested in being useful. What's it, what, it, interesting about Frances, though, is that she's very determined, very much her own individual, but very respectful of her own tradition. She's never yeah. trying to go against it. Yeah, and in the amount of people, you'd be amazed, Paul, the amount of people in the gestation of this film that said to me, wouldn't it be great if she just left all her family behind? I was like, what a remarkable thing to say as an idea of victory, of triumph. Did you go, right, you say like, okay, so the tension in the film is between belonging and freedom to kind of just clear it out. Okay, belonging and freedom. That's the tension of every human being alive on this planet. Now, there was, uh, there was like, one time when I was walking along by the side of Phoenix Park, a man stopped, dropped his pants and he shit on the path in front of me. And I went, well, there's one image of freedom because he's broken entirely with the social contract. He, there was the gateway into the park was right beside him. He could have nipped in and done it privately. He could have got caught. <laughs> well, well, he was, he was, he could have, he was right out there and broad, oh. along by the traffic on the path, you know, fully visible. So I was going, really, for people to suggest, I found that a very odd kind of a response, almost like into the fairy tale of it. Now, I did use a quite lyrical, romantic style in That's order true. to float and, the and, story. And, and I say a lot of people find it hard to get their heads around that because you play with that tradition 
and you also have a non-judgmental aspect to it as well. So it leaves an awful lot of conversation for yeah. anyone that is trying to engage with it properly at all. I think, you know what, I have zero, zero problem with real punter seeing this film. It never fails. And I can honestly say that it does not fail. If you imagine yourself to be a cultural elite, if you imagine yourself to know something more than the average person, you might be struggling. That's the personal struggle with this film. And I've seen that with audiences. Because basically what I'm doing is I'm using a, an emotional chronology that's democratic to tell a really complex story around the collision of identities. Every one of us are living embodiments of collisions of identities. OK, I'm a, I'm working class. I'm um, a mother. I'm uh, married to an African man. Like, who? where is my tribe? Where do I belong? And then how do I exercise freedom while remaining close to the people I love? You know, because very often the real obstacle in your way to absolute freedom will be people you love. It's grand if it's people you don't give a damn about. Yeah. There's no cost there. There's no mm. price to be paid. So I was kind of going, well, it's a bit of a cop out if she exits because what she's fighting for is the right to leadership within her tribe. Actually, just going, no, I'm fighting for you. I have to, and I have to fight you, my father, for you, actually, my father. So I go, well, really, I was surprised. I worked really, it took drafts and drafts and drafts before there was anything. Like now there's what's generally experienced by people as a big bump, a, a big lift on the ending. You know, a good release of energy and you go feeling like, fuck, all right. Was it yes. contemporary that was at hard. any stage in the drafts? Um, only when it was a prose story in, in not a prose story, but more like a monologue that Francis was speaking in my head at one point early. It was contemporary. Uh, it And then it was contemporary and it was Katie Taylor. But only when I went back to the past with Muhammad Ali instead of Katie Taylor, once Muhammad Ali and a teenage traveller girl crossed paths, I was like, now I'm in the territory of a movie. And I used the word movie. Uh, Snap was a film. I would say this is a movie. And what I, what I, some of the tasks, I know lots of people work unconsciously in their creative endeavours. Like most of my intentions are kind of relentlessly conscious. So I mm -hmm. always know when I fail. <laughs> so you, when you the, say unconsciously, isn't it? They just kind of see what happens to a certain point and then well, you know, like the, analyze the, it. Well, well, the kind of, the cliche is that the artist is somehow naive to their own intentions and, and that the artist is making things less up. so than say painters. I would agree. Yeah. I'd agree. I would agree. Yeah. We're by nature and as well with screenwriting. To be honest, there are so many people uh, making incursions on your work on every level well, all the time. And filmmaking as well is one of the hard ones because it's, it's such a collaborative process. Massive. Massive. Uh, 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 well, let's go back to... But on that one, just to finish you, on the collaboration yeah, business. On. Well, Mike Lee's the one fella who says... And I, I am convinced that this is why he doesn't put scripts down on paper. It's to stop people tearing at him. If he doesn't put it down on paper, they can't engage in the same way they can once you have the bit of paper. And he says, why I've don't they cough and, up and, yeah. and fuck off, is his point of view. <laughs> cough up and fuck off to, to the financiers. Now, I, I don't mind engaging 
I love to engage because what I'm doing is everyone's an audience and I'm seeing how it's functioning. But what I found to be a remarkable thing is very often we'll attack what's potent. We'll attack something for the fact it's working rather than the fact it's not. How do, how would all the engagement that we have with the life of a film do we have so many, so many films that don't work at all for anyone? If all the engagement worked, how would that happen? Mm. How would so many films come out of these studio systems with every less expert and act, you know, somebody brought in to be an expert on just humour and this type. Like, yeah, you know what I mean? Quote JFK, the book has this up somewhere and there's a kind of core point of view. Whatever. Yeah. That's, that's what the director is yeah. essentially, I suppose. In yeah, terms of the director the or the writer, it depends. Yeah. And like, I think if it's, if it's the, the more experienced directors that I've met are more... Um, are much more likely to be led by their writers than the less experienced ones. Yeah. They have the in, the wisdom. What was to tougher find for you, writers. writing or directing? Um the writing in being in schooling myself to oh write such a kind of a straightforward classic narrative was so tough. I wanted to go into my splintering of point of view, challenging this was like, it was like, it was so tough sticking but with that Partly classic. as well, you're writing for the people to read and No, it wasn't that or, at all. That wasn't no. it. What I went, what I knew was when I exercised restraint there creatively in the writing, it would pay massive dividends in the directing. And actually that the directing job was going to be much richer. Well, you were writing for the director. Yeah, that was you, what I was doing. Luckily it was you. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're spot on. And I was like going, oh, it was... I don't, I mean, it was, it nearly killed me because I was dying to start getting tricksy. But when I remember when I made Snap and I remember someone saying to me, like the first few minutes, you know, the, the you know, the mobile phones and the different technologies, they were saying there's a massive audience for that film that you you potentially could alienate with the first five minutes. Now, I think that's debatable because sometimes what's, tough to go through in the first moments will make your experience later but but this that's film, when you're allowed to do those things to take yeah, those chances you yeah. won't get away with it later on I mean essentially because I'm stubborn as hell I did make the film I wanted to make but I had more battles than what I really would be advisable because at the end of the day you want your energy to be going into creating the project and not continually 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 defending and explaining and just bringing people on board and it's like okay I had this conversation four years ago now we're going to have it again now like but this just this is this is the reality of working in this industry it is an industry yeah and it's not necessarily uh, sensitive to the art involved yes. and I would have been you know like basically I was working on a film that was going to be all heart and spirit and they're the two most vulnerable parts of a film through a massive lengthy development process keeping it alive at the level of heart and spirit I'm going like you can sustain injury you know you sustain injury so easily in those places with a film yeah so I, I it was it took a toll but certainly yeah the writing I was kind of saying everything that I'm I'm with I'm I'm being disciplined about now I wanted to try my hand at a broad a film that was broadly available as an act of communication. I'm not talking about broad by way of commercialism. 
Although, yeah, if that happened, great. But I really, like, I'm one of 12 kids. I was like, what would it be like to make a film that all of my siblings would be likely to enjoy plus their teenage children, plus my mother, plus my my big extended clan. I was going, like, with any piece of work, I'd kind of know who to advise not to see it. Like, I'd know, I'd still know even with mm-hmm. this now, I'd say, uh, yeah, maybe. That's what I mean about kind of my, if you have a kind of a... If you tend to like obscure, opaque work, this wouldn't be a film for you. It isn't like. Of course. And tell me the journey. How early were Samson on board with your project? Not not from the very beginning. I mean, really, at the beginning of this, um, I'm told, you know, I, re- <laughs> I read about myself that Snap did really well, but it was remarkably hard to get the support going yeah. forward with the next film. So this um, this is a film that at every stage I've had to graph for. So it was even a graph to get um, the first support and then that did come through Martina at Samson. The fact we'd done Snap together and, uh, you know, uh, in the early days, I just didn't give her another option of it being a different film. You know what I mean? By way of like... And then later, as as we were very far down the line and I was desperate to be writing comedy. I was just desperate to be making comedy, to be working with comic, comic actors. And I turned to Martina and I said, Martina, like, you know, this is just, it's really, really hurting me to the length of time it's taking to get this film made. There's so many other films I'm dying to make. And I'm particularly mad to work through comedy. And she she really held the faith at that point. She was like, "Let's let's keep going, Carmen. Let's keep going." And I'm very so. so it, you yeah, know, while it's a great thing to have that support because yeah, sometimes you just go blind. But, yeah, but you know what? The thing is, like, it's like there's no human can go all the way alone all the time. Yeah. None, and it's a complete fallacy. It's like anything decent, any great work. I mean, I remember being in the states and working for Sam Francis, the painter who's, you know, huge kind of iconic figure in a certain type of abstract expressionist art. The amount of people that created the illusion of the genius individual, like the amount of people who were almost vamp, you know, uh, like, like he... Entourage. They were, their insides were eaten with what they gave him. They gave mm. him everything. They sacrificed their talent for his. You know what I mean? Now, I'd, I wouldn't... I know nobody... such relationships in art, all right. That well, there's a lot of muses out there that do a lot more than be mused. Exactly. But, like, honestly, every single... Anything of a certain greatness is great because behind that one individual, there are so many. So when it came to kind of... When it did come around to directing this, just a number... The budget level we were at was not the optimum budget level for a kind of film like this. Mm-hmm. I remember talking to Lenny Abramson and he's been very helpful. A key point of stress, I've I've asked Lenny for advice. When I described this film to him, he said, I wouldn't even attempt it, Carmel. In, and I knew exactly what he was getting at. He was not being a downer, not being a disser. He was actually going, wow. He was recognising, as I did, a mile away. I was going, this is purely perilous. It's just scale-wise I'm going to be working with loads of elements um, with very little structure, you know, by way of number of people on the shoot and a kind of, and budget, budget. Time is your biggest one. Actually, forget the numbers. 
mm. time. Twenty-five it's, it's days. It's tiresome for you to, to hear, but it doesn't betray the fact that it costs so little. But you but know, twenty. The audience don't care. They want to see a film, oh, but they will notice when something they do is, know. is wonky. I'll tell you this much: I, you must uh, on this film. I had to had to deliver visual pleasure. I couldn't make this film without delivering key The horse rewards. fair in particular, that was yeah, a, a hugely big scene. busy uh, sequence. Yeah, well, well, Tama was, McCollum, who was the designer, um, she basically uh, delivered, like I remember Kathleen Dorr saying, if we had 10 times the budget in Dublin, we wouldn't have been able to make this film. What she did was she called on all the brilliant people in the area Every farmer, uh, she knew loads and loads of travellers as well, um, just from the markets, essentially, and engaging as she as she does in life all the time. And people just brought her. They, they yeah. brought her gear. They brought her. Um, she found the wagons she got. <laughs> now, she'd lived in those tents that you see in the film. So yeah. she knew how to make them. But um, she and then she brought on this woman, Jackie Nevin, who'd had a similar kind of experience of living outside in camps for years and then Trina Lillis came on in costume honestly I am like this is what I mean about the big team there were people in this film that once we got to a certain kind of pitch and a certain temperature I was hands off largely I'm like yeah we've had all the very early very intense conversations and I'm going and and pretty much everything they did was better than what I had in mind that's one of the joys and it's not always the case people working with you yeah it's not always the case and the care yeah yeah. and actually they're just they're oper- they're in their element creatively they are supreme creative artists I'm really like basically I'm only happy when I'm with people who are great honestly like when I'm if someone's great at what they do I'm going oh this is so <laughs> enjoyable and every level I go like uh, the guy who was the composer and this is Stephen Warbeck and I used to just like the joy, the joy. And it's always easier in post because there isn't the same massive time pressure. But like just a sheer joy of his art. Like you got that's when directing I mean, sometimes it's the worst job because you're the servant of everyone. Once you went into production, how much pressure were you under? What was the time scale and what were you juggling to get it done at that stage? Oh, it was 25 day shoot. 23 and a half of them outside all day long. Yeah, you didn't know trailers. Much escape. No, none. I think none. you escaped when you got to so the Settled Travellers loved... Cottage and that was a bit it. <laughs> oh yeah, when we went to that house it was gas because I, going into that film one of my chief anxieties was, one of many, but one was that the cast would get exhausted from being outside all the time. But thankfully they started using the barrel top wagons and the tents like Lala Roddy who plays Big Daddy, he used to go in, he just, he'd sidle off, you know, after cut and there he is inside in the bed, inside in the tent. And they used the set as a home and uh, by the time we got to the house very useful on lots of levels it was fabulous now usually that's exactly what your average uh, production design team will go crazy if that's happening <laughs> the minute you call cut don't touch anything but instead like people were eating the food that was cooked for the scenes it was all being demolished eaten because they preferred it to like cooked on the fire to cooked in the catering truck but it's a kind of community that happens with a strong indie production like that I think that you yeah. can't get on a, you're never going to get it on a bigger and scale you know what but as well as indie production what we did was we we had a mixture we had the professional crew and uh, we had complete first timers professional cast and crew complete first timers and in community talent and it was a real cross pollination 
Now, it's tricky. I mean, I, I sail right into the wind at times. You know what I mean? Mm. And it's kind of like, but where, what will be, where, if it leaves a scar, what you don't see is the gift to give. You know what I'm getting yes, at? Yes, I do. There's always a gift. There's a bit of cross. There's something about the... I mean, you were blessed with the weather. Well, it only looks like we were blessed with Well, I mean, no. Now, rain is all I think about. I don't think about rain. I know it's probably yeah. freezing. Oh, it, come here to me. The fight scene, right? The kind of climactic scene yes, towards the end, right? Yes, of course. The weather... In, the, we had um, the paramedics insisting that certain people were taken off set because of hypothermia. I mean, it was really... Ropey. Now, Michael. Well, you were, lo- Michael you, you were probably right. And because people forget when you're on a set, your brain goes that extra mile. Yeah. People don't get sick. They don't do anything because they're busy doing the thing and they will forget things like that. Well, it's not that we forgot. I knew it was happening, but we couldn't change the circumstances. The only option was don't shoot or shoot. And not shooting was not an option. Then, yeah, but... It, honestly, it's as simple as so that. So nobody died. We were down there, nobody Carmel. died, right? Nobody died, <laughs> but really, we don't have... People think, like, these choices, you go, no, the fact is, it's do or die. <laughs> we didn't have we didn't have contingency on anything. Yeah, we didn't I, have I always... seconds of costumes. We didn't have doubles. It's like, oh my God, we'd have to do a fight scene with blood and all this, and we have no seconds. So it was a real tightrope film. Yeah, it was tightrope. But the thing is, what we did was... We basically went all out on the risk. So we had to real deal with every single... If you look at that production design, it's practically faultless. It's unreal. Now, I'm not taking... The people, and, and that includes costume design. I'm going like, they went for it. And basically, Trina went to pawn shops and got real gold. She would not put fake gold on an actor. I was like going, what? <laughs> and she was like, I won't do it. <laughs> every single element in the set was real. Proper antique the real deal no copies that beats no fakes. Robert De Niro's silk underwear in The Untouchables well do you know what I think about it though it was interesting because I was kind of going ah oh, Jesus I definitely do but actors love the shoes. thing there's, they do there's a, there's a great, the great quote I, I love is actors love shoes you're spot on <laughs> but the only thing about I must put in a little warning against no one them. notices the shoes but the actors are wearing them I remember that from my own acting mm. I'd be like just put the right shoes on me and I'd, be, I'd love it I'm, I'm grand like I'm sorted but come here to me the big thing with vintage shoes as I've discovered if you're outside in the rain and the sand the glues dissolve Okay, I didn't so know the soles come off. So in every scene, someone's sole is coming off their shoe <laughs> as they're trying to get on. But like, but it's interesting. It it you see, look, it depends. Well, let's get into a bit of witchcraft. <laughs> a bit of witchcraft. If now look, film is completely constructed. Every single and if it looks like reality, it's even more mediated than you can possibly credit. It's so mediated. But Jesus, if you can put the real deal all around people, they'll. The, every single object is coming with a story and we actually knew most of the stories and most of the objects I'm telling you it does something do you know what I mean yes it do, there is magic there is magic if you've got 360 degree reality you might say oh well look you know I remember like look outside now the kind of style of shooting the shooting style was so loose and loose and I, I said to Michael I said like oh Jesus and I'm, this, is, this is my nightmare because this film is only going to live at the level of energy and a level of life force if it's and about 80% Michael Lavelle, Michael Lavelle the DP cinematographer so I was like going it's only going to live if we achieve about if our ratio of chaos to form is about 80% chaos 20% form now I said that is where I I don't I don't like going near 80% chaos 
I'm like the opposite. I like 80% form control to 20% chaos. So therefore I had to be around people who kind of are a little bit mad and actually like, yeah, you get plenty of that, Michael. (laughs) So I had to surround myself with people like, you know, that actually were very different to me creatively. So that made the film, it kept making the film. uh, What happens is it, it opens out in ways you wouldn't have was always your zone of not even comfort, but preference. You know what I mean? And it's not that you're not still leading. You very much have to be or you'll have nothing at the end of the day. But that like, um, just that in order, look, what I suppose it is, is that I had to take a massive stretch beyond where I was at and where I needed to be to make this film. Yeah. And the only way I could do that was working with people who were comfortable in zones that I wasn't and lean into them. And Michael, again, has got a good kind of history with that kind of filmmaking. Do you know, he's brilliant. And I'll tell you what he has in spades, because I know lots of filmmakers listen to these podcasts. Uh, what he has in spades is like the I can do attitude. He is a, be- a director's best friend on set. He's never Mr. Negative. He's Mr. Positive. You need that. And I'll tell you this much, it's like gold. It's just lovely. And I, and what and cast absolutely love when they see United Director and DP. It's so much easier. Give a shout out there for the sound people. What was it like working with good sound oh people? God, I loved I, I must say. Uh this film last night in when we had our pre opening screener in the in the lighthouse, we had fabulous speakers. And the sound team were like, Yes. Very often they bust a gut. They do. For they the get film, forgotten. And they get and we get played. Look, I know if you're going to make a film that's all about emotion, well, 90% of that is carried through sound. The sound reaches the brain before the image. So the sound has set you up emotionally and then you'll explain it with what you saw. But it was what you heard. Well, like last night, a couple of people had seen this film through links because of, in fact, rake people reviewing this film have seen it. This is the worst possible film you could see on your laptop. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. The frame is jammed with action. And the sound is massive at times. And you got that coming out of a little laptop speaker. So there were a couple of people there and they were just going, they were actually embarrassed at how different, like they just realised, oh, I didn't see the film at all. And there was I, confident I'd seen the film. And the point is, they hadn't heard the film. Um, so, um, but basically, Colm, Colm Mullally from Egg, like he was our mixer. The beautiful work he did. Stephen Warbeck, the composer, I was just like, joy all the way. Michelle McCormick, like, we're all, like, we were, you know, the likes of fight scenes, it's all what you hear. Yeah. If you turn off the volume on your average fight movie, you see all the tricks. It's the sound is selling mm-hmm. it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So very, the artistry of sound is massive. I, I can't massive. remember his name, but he's a wonderful sound designer for, that worked with uh, Scorsese on Raging Bull. Yeah. And he used an, an amalgamation of animal sounds yeah. for, for the fight scenes. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's amazing. And he said a brilliant thing. He said, I always destroy everything when I finish the shoot. He said, what, do you not keep a library? He said, why would I want to plagiarise myself? Imagine. I want to be challenged to do something new. The oh my God, time. I love to hear that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something, I, I'm so glad you brought it up because I suppose it's probably the area I get most excited by. But also, I think we just haven't built into the process enough around sound. And actually, it's surprising how much, how much we end up having to dip into libraries. Yeah. And that's awful. Like, 
I remember working when we did snap like the sound people were saying to me why didn't you let the toddler cry a bit longer <laughs> oh Jesus and we went to the library like I was like going wow there's very little I was like Jesus wait a minute there's very little real toddler crying available in the right environment yeah, you're going to go around smacking people's kids and recording well, that's yeah. what you need to do and then you know what's funny Paul though after we we did have to rob a bit of library child crying right we did uh, the amount of films I went out to hear and see afterwards and the amount of times I heard the same child crying I was like ah Jesus <laughs> well, that's, the <laughs> that's the child from my you, film you know there's a very famous uh, scream effect called, I think it's called the Wilhelm scream what and is it, it, it do it's, it for it's, me it, oh, I won't do it for you yeah, uh, I, I, I couldn't I couldn't remember it but it goes back to western back in 1956 yeah. or something like that yeah. and it's been thrown into low so many movies ever since yeah. Spielberg and Lucas love it they always throw it in there oh, and it's, it's done as a matter of form it's a little joke I must look it up so you'll have to get the Wilhelm stream into your next one yeah <laughs> definitely I'm going to take that as a challenge the whole film tell, tell me a bit about it. the rehearsal process you've got amazing actors in there yeah. and young uh, Hazel and uh, who was played her brother Johnny Collins Johnny, and I mean the central three everybody was fantastic by the way Hilda Faye I love to watch I, I think her. she's a lovely actress I love her um, and the grandfather Lola Roddy. They were, they were all gorgeous. Superb. And everyone around them was all did a fantastic job. But Hazel, especially, you've created a bit of a star there or helped her along the way. She anyway. is a star. Do you know what? Like, um, I, I don't know. As regards, I think the best thing you can do for a great actor is give them the right material. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's largely a relationship between the... I, I think that's more around the writing. Directors get credited for performances that are more about the meeting of the actor and the script. It happens all the time. I see it. I go like, well, you see, any any actor worth their salt is into writers, yep. into good writers. Yeah. They spot the writer who can write for them. Well, see, and they give them the latitude. directors know when to shut your mouth and just let them get on with it and take credit. I on it. Well, <laughs> well I, I, I'm not into stealing... Well, you know what I mean. Yeah, just be I know quiet that. And let them get on with it. Well, <laughs> yeah, like I'm, I'm always amazed at like you're given credit for absolutely everything that's other people's artistry. You know, I, I, <laughs> like, okay, you have certainly a big role to play in creating the right conditions, but um, I think the biggest part of your work is cast great people. Yeah, is um, casting is I think the director's yeah. most important job to, with regard to the actors. It's massive. It's massive. It's not whether it be other talent and who they are. Yeah, and in on, every, on the director and all your HODs as well. Like I mean, like it's probably, and 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 that's where it helps to be working more. Like that gap between snap and this was so painful. I should have been building my team with more work. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like to have you know an enforced gap because you're just part you know part financed and promised and then delayed and promised and then delayed, which is still a thing in this business and in, in the Irish industry. Well, you know, I'm not. The thing is, right? It's not unique. You were to busy Ireland. now. You busy writing plays and that as well. Yeah, I was. I I'm so glad saying. I couldn't. Yeah. I could. I would have fossilized as a as a creative person if I wasn't. I yeah. had to be. You have to be exercising your craft, and it really hurts when you don't get a chance to stay limber. I mean, I remember going into the film and going, Jesus, like the first couple of days of the shoot, I was going, so glad I've got some great people around me who are doing this more often because I've got to come up to yeah. speed here. And I was like, when does a director get a chance to exercise their craft except through directing? Oh, you you're know? always the least experienced person on the set. Yeah, absolutely. That's why the thing about like, you know, I think very often actors make directors is more to the point. And certainly... The biggest unacknowledged thing among actors is actors learn from each other. 
put the right actors together. Like Darren Hazel, the chemistry between them would blow your head off the first workshop day I did with them. I nipped out. One stage they were like exchanging tunes and the guitar and all that. Like, And it was, there was just this massive, like, uh, you know, one actor who loves what the other can do and knows that what they're doing is yeah. bringing out what they can do. And it's just this incredible symbiosis. I said, I'll nip out to the loo now and see what, see what happens. And I'm going out to the room. Left the room. They just kept creating. Now, if that wasn't happening, they'd stop, wait till I come back in. I was like, we're laughing. My job is like largely done. By the time I'm finished casting, I have zero. And I really mean this sincerely. I have zero worry about the actors. I have 1000% belief that they're entirely right. And very rarely, I'll always influence their decisions by my way of being. But I almost never issue a direct instruction. And I never, um, I'm always I really enjoy what they do. Like it just makes the filmmaking because so much is so hard about filmmaking. So much is so like uh, fraught and difficult. There's so many decisions. It's like basically it's geared towards failure. The whole process is geared towards (laughs) failure and it's a miracle if anything survives. It's just like can you survive your own mistakes? How many of your own mistakes can you survive? You're watching. This is what it's really like on set. If we want to be genuinely honest what it's like on set. You're watching You've done a scene, you're going, right, very quick kind of analysis and you spot around, right, about 20 different things that you'd like to do better. And you go, have a, if I take the time to correct these, what do I lose? And you make a quick calculation. Luckily, I'm a bookie's daughter (laughs) and it's all calculations around that. You go like, which of these errors can we survive? Yeah. Oh, that's it. That, that's it. You hit it one and then you you'll might do two more takes and you might have created different ones in different takes and you're okay. Yeah, right. and, and actually... So it's time to move on. Well, the poor editor in our case, because I was like... I'd say... Julian Ulrich. Coverage. Wagons of coverage. And an editor's nightmare. Yeah. And like, not a nice thing where it's like, oh, there were seven takes and two of them were good and the rest forget about. It was like, well, there's yeah. a scrap in this and a little <laughs> bit in that and there's another bit in that. And actually it was kind of... It was wildly organic in a way that like it's tough on the editor now if they're the kind of editor that loves that challenge great some do some, some do, do. Well, now, I, I do a bit of editing myself and that's my, probably my one of my best traits as a director Yeah, is that I get to give out a bit to the director so that's yeah. a weird one you know yeah. and I, I would be like you you go there's a little bit there and then you don't have to use yeah. on that one take versus that one take and give me four takes to meet that one do you, do you know what's tricky about generating that amount of coverage I would like to reduce my volume of coverage slight, not not I coverage, more cover and less volume of rushes. Yeah. Because the reason why I would like to reduce the volume is actually when you come out, right, so you're about 12 or 14 hours on set. You have a massive amount of work to do for the next day. But do you not think The amount of time you can go through your own rushes and it's so valuable. Actually, there is a lot to be said for because at times like Michael would be Michael and myself, if he was here now, we'd have a great chat about this. He believes every moment not shooting, not actually putting stuff in the can is wasted. But I, I don't agree the with side that. effect of, of uh, being independent and not having loads of money at the front that you end up generating more footage because you're on the run and you want to make the most of it. No, I don't think that's the real reason, I, even though I think that's probably I think it actually might be the the reason for the mentality, but it mm. shouldn't. It's not necessary. Yeah, because sometimes I, yeah, like that little bit of like actually restraint and prep, 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 prep. Honestly, you just 
Uh, I would say. Speaking of which, how much rehearsal time did you have, or was it? We'd about we'd about there were a couple of people. I use my auditions wisely. Let me tell you, I don't. I would like. Yeah, nice work. Honestly, I just would say to anyone. Rehearsal before they realised. (laughs) Well, you see, it's just pragmatism about human nature, right? If you are an artist, you Paul are an artist, and I'm working with you. You'll have made the biggest decisions that will affect this entire project in the very earliest stages. So if I cast you and four months later we're rehearsing, right? You've already made all the macro decisions, the ones that matter. So I want to be in that room with you while you're making those decisions. And I want to see those decisions. And that's the audition. But when they're made, I'm like going, yes, don't mess with a good thing. You know what I mean? Trust and build the trust and build the confidence so that the execution is bold. But as regards the, um, I really believe in, in terms of like, the audition process once somebody's cast I think everything is less fluid like before before the landing it's a bit like that wonderful like not right you know there, you can overdo the stewing on a script before you write yeah. it you can Eventually overdo you the stewing do it. you have to do it right but at the same time not stewing at all is thin and uninteresting yeah. You know what I mean? The script, the, the person who's no trouble writing, they can write 50 pages a day and you're kind of going, mm, maybe there's a reason for that. Do you know what I mean? There has to be a little bit of tension before the arrow leaves the bow. You know what I mean? That's a nice way of putting it. And in the casting process, that tension is before the arrow leaves the bow, it's the time of opportunity. It's so creative. The actor, all the actors I absolutely love have already, because I love an autonomous actor. I have no interest in any H.O.D. Any head of department or any actor that I'm going to be like somehow instructing Well, I'm going like sure why would I why would I instruct another expert? It should never be your job. No, no, no. But like where with, but with the audition process to really investigate and to really use that time well I am so indebted to it. Because in terms of official prep like there were very few people down in the area at all until about one week and a half before we shot. And then you're doing absolutely everything. At the same time as you can imagine, so like most people. What time are of year was it? We were mid September into late October. So it was late in the well, year. When we finished, we finished. Um, if we had gone one day over into the next week, it was Storm Ophelia. Wow! Now <laughs> our closed. set all outside was blown to bitter. We didn't have weather insurance, by the way. That's another consequence of low budget filmmaking or modest budget filmmaking. I mean, there's way lower budget than what where we were at. But as regards, um, like my producer was working on the Young Offenders at the same time, and she said to me, "Please, can we look? You know, just go two weeks later." And I was kind of going. I should say yes. And she was saying, you know, what's the real difference? And the line producer Kathleen was doing the same. She was saying, what's the difference in two weeks later? And I was kind of going, geez, we're outside all the time and weather's rough. We're going from mid-September into the third week of October. I was going, I don't want to put another two weeks on that. If we'd even put a day on it, we were blown away. You know what I mean? But, or rather, if we'd put the two weeks on it, I, I don't think our shoot would have survived it. And I kind of think of yeah, all... Well, there's a lot of diminishing returns when it gets into November, October, Well, November. you see, you see, sometimes you get... It is it's getting like crazy Ireland, You don't know. The only thing that yeah. would have been great, like there were arguments, like there were sensible requests from both producers in the sense that there were very sensible requests in that we were short of nighttime hours. We had kids like trying to do night shoots. It was a nightmare. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, in terms of like, we would all start... That's another thing. Like with so many restrictions around a certain age, you can only do so many hours shooting. And sure, all our cast were 
Life's why you see. It drives me nuts. You know when you're watching TV and you're going, oh, it's a teenage drama and everyone's about 30. I'm like, that's not a teenager. Sorry, I can't buy that. That's the reason. <laughs> they don't want to work with people under 16. The restrictions and they're greater yeah. again the younger you go. And that's why you get like 40 year olds playing 12 year olds. You know what I mean? Being a bit <laughs> facetious. But you know, it, it does yeah. feel ridiculous. But there's a good reason for it. But what I'm getting at is that like all of us, any filmmaker that goes out there, the the amount that's just, you're, you're playing with, like it's a bit like, like I say, from a long line of gamblers. And I go like, it's just a massive gamble. There's a load beyond your control as well as what's within your control. And you're just lucky if some things go with you. Well, it's been a great gamble and you've had a nice festival run and fingers crossed. You've got a few territories lined up for the... Planet. Yeah, yeah. It's actually salt in some and others it's kind of, there's still some people sitting on the fence. Um, But generally speaking, I, I think it's going to have a life. And what um, I like about one thing I'd say to anybody is it's very interesting setting a film in the past. Contemporary can age very quickly. Contemporary is tricky on every level because yeah. we can't see what's right in front of us. But even uh, but but setting it in the past, I I feel like it'll have a good life, you know, and uh, I hope it'll stand the test of time. And you have a, a Zebby nomination going up here. Thanks very much. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um. So what's next after this? Have you got anything lined up? Yeah. Yeah. No, they've nothing lined up by way of finance. <laughs> <laughs> But any financiers out there with a with a brain? Yeah, but I this am, woman. Oh my god, I've got a list of my long. I have a backlog plus a, you know, a forward log of all the things I want to do. But uh, yeah, I I do want to, I do want to um, make. I want to make a great TV series as well at some point, for the opportunity. What kills me when I'm working with material is, having to pinch characters that I know are so rich when they're, you know, like. I could have given you oh, any any one of the family members in Float Like a Butterfly. I could make them the star of a film in their own right. Yeah. Any one of them. Any, and then as well, the people you cast, you go, oh, I want to give you more. I want to, I really desperately want to give your talent more. And I was thinking like, sure, the TV writers are so lucky. Like, you know what I mean? Well, just, and again, for a long while now, the, what ideas you express in film or television is different than it was say about yeah. 20, 30 years ago it's, yeah, I think there's a bit of a golden age happening um, with this little digital wild west that they got like, in all sorts of shapes and sizes yeah yeah. so I'd like to i like to get cracking there and, and I'm mad for the big uh, bold body mischievous fleshy and comedy. comedy comedy that's yep. the one yeah uh, yeah, so I have a comedy musical, uh, Irish Korean comedy musical that I am like massively, massively. I think you might have some backers as soon as they hear yeah. this. Paul, Paul, you get on it. <laughs> Carmel, thank you so much. I hope it goes really well thank for you. you and good luck with your next project. Thanks a million. Thank, thank you so much. Say anything.